About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. While he was praying, his face changed and his clothes became shining white. Suddenly Moses and Elijah were there speaking with him. They appeared in heavenly glory and talked about all that Jesus' death in Jerusalem would mean. Peter and the other two disciples had been sound asleep. All at once they woke up and saw how glorious Jesus was. They also saw the two men who were with him. Moses and Elijah were about to leave when Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But Peter did not know what he was talking about. While Peter was still speaking, a shadow from a cloud passed over them, and they were frightened as the cloud covered them. From the cloud, a voice spoke, This is my chosen son. Listen to what he says. After the voice had spoken, Peter, John, and James saw only Jesus. For some time, they kept quiet and did not say anything about what they had seen. May this be to us the word of the Lord. Hello and welcome to the Lectio Cascadia podcast. My name is Brandon Rhodes, and I'm glad you're here. Thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for the show's music. And if this show is uh, providing meaning and beauty in your life every week, uh, you know, please take a moment to rate it accordingly uh, in your podcast player of choice. And more importantly to me anyway, uh, send a particularly meaningful episode to someone that maybe would dig it too. So I'm going to I'm going to preface this episode by saying it's far and away the most speculative of anything I've, you know, uh, broadcast so far. The story is it's just crazy. Uh, it's hard to make heads or tails of it. So, you know, I, I want to. I feel, you know, this is Transfiguration Sunday. It's a big Sunday in the church's rhythm of time. Um, but I'm just baffled with wonder at every turn. The story, yeah, it, it baffles me. Baffles, I guess it's just the right word. Uh, as I gaze at the scene, I feel like Peter, just wanting to say something thoughtful or helpful. Because I just, I, I, I don't know better. I don't know better. I mean, Jesus' face glows. His clothes glow. He's hanging out with two dead guys on a mountain. And then his best friend is cut off from saying something a little dumb by a cloud yelling at him. <laughs> It's so fantastical and interesting, but without, I guess without, like, really clear meaning. Uh, you know, it's like, well, okay, Jesus is extra special because he glows? <laughs> uh, there's There's got to be something more. This is one of the stories that um, most of the early collections of Jesus' stories included, this, this story of Christ being transfigured. Uh, it, it seemed really important to the early movement of his followers, but it's about a glowing guy and a cloud that screams, <laughs> right? Um, so what 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 can I say about this? Hmm. Well, yeah, I, there there are a lot of interesting details. Maybe combined, they can give some insights about this crazy scene. Uh, so I want to pick at a few of them, see where they go and, and then see if we, if they braid together with any, if not elegance, then possibility. 
So I want to talk about his shiny face. I want to talk about his shiny clothes. I want to talk about his new old ghost buddies. And then the screaming cloud. All right, so let's start with the fact that Jesus is freaking glowing. Now, glowing or radiating is not something that people usually do, unless their friends had an entheogen, um, and I really don't think that's what happened here. Um, and glowing people is also not typical in the Bible. Uh, it does, it does, but it does happen in the Bible. Uh, it, it did once, or once that comes to mind for me. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the only other story in uh, the Christian and uh, Jewish collections of stories is um, from way back, part of one of the most important stories that Jesus' tribe told. His ancestors all came from one wandering rich dude from what's now Iraq, who had this series of this guy had this series of mystical experiences that convinced him his descendants were going to bring about vitality and goodness to all of humanity and maybe the world, um, eventually, somehow. But his descendants find themselves subjugated to Egyptian, this Egyptian empire, to Pharaoh, where they languish, but they also multiply. Eventually, their god responds to their wailing for liberation, slaps the hell out of all the stories of little gods that that empire used to justify their oppression, and then bring uh, the, the Jewish god Yahweh brings those children of the promise out of the empire through the waters and into the wild, into a land beyond the emperor's control. These liberated slaves are on their way to a land promised to them to settle into and make their make into their holy home. So many interesting details I'd love to explore here. Uh, but you know, on their on their way, they set up camp at the at the base of this mountain called Sinai, which their leader Moses climbs and enters this crazy cloud of like violence and mystery and talks with Yahweh, talks with God, the Holy One. He, Moses comes down from the mountain with these big stone tablets uh, that lay out some like kind of core commandments, ten of them actually, hmm. uh, that begin this much longer list of commands and directions for how to live in community in that holy home together. And so Moses comes down from this mountain, and his face is glowing. You are the people of promise. And it's like... <laughs> I can't even really focus on what he's what he wrote down. It's more like, uh, your face is glowing, dude. Please put a veil over that. So every time he goes up the mountain and talks to God, when he comes back down, he has a bit of veil on his face because it's it's shining. And then he gets to take it off uh, when he goes back up the mountain. So not surprising, this is this is one of the other stories uh in the lectionary for this Sunday. The primary carriers of the Jesus tradition over the centuries have found it important for all these centuries to read these two stories together every year. I'll take that as a clue. So there's something about Jesus' face glowing that relate on a mountain that relates to this Moses story, who you know Moses is one of two characters he's he's talking to. He is the author of Luke wants us to know in face-to-face communion with Moses' God, Yahweh. Radiance is an image for divine intimacy. And maybe more.
there might be something here to what Yahweh was up to with Moses and what Yahweh may be up to with Jesus. Dog ear that. Dog ear that. Um, next up, Jesus's clothes are freaking shining. Now, this is even weirder to me. Um, and there's really only one explicit story that I can recall. I'm, I hope to God there's somebody listening that can tell me <laughs> if there's another story in scripture uh, of a person's clothes shining. Um, it's it's from this book that uh, chronicles the early history of Jesus' followers where this king fashions a super shiny suit and goes out on this balcony and pro- proclaims himself a god. And he's struck dead right there, and that's the end of his bullshit. <laughs> right? 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 <laughs> I'm shiny, and I am God. Oh, bam. Gone. Um, that's in there. Interesting story. Uh, he, but he makes himself, like, catch, catch that catch that arc. He makes himself radiant, shiny, glorious, and claims to be God. Was there something about radiance that symbolized this? I have to assume so. That there was something symbolic or presumed magic to the attire. Uh, something, you know, I guess more potent than uh, OMG Dapper Man is shiny. You know, it. this is speculative. This is wondering aloud. But I don't think it's without warrant. You know, um, now, <laughs> hold my mead. Because uh, I'm not going to just gently pull on the spring string of thought and see where it goes. I'm, I'm going to give it a bit of a yank. Um, I should be clear here that this is as speculative as it'll all get. Uh, I have to at least get the wondering out of my head. So thanks for coming into my head and hearing this. Um, I don't think what I'm exploring was really necessarily in the head of the author of the transfiguration story or Jesus or the characters in the story, but that's not how, um, contemplative reading of, of uh, the Bible works, and said, I am trusting that all truth is God's truth, that the reality-warping magic of these sacred stories lies in their metaphors and stories. Hat tip to my friend Leonard for that insight. And so therefore, these little semiotic spelunking expeditions are just me holding up the tuning fork of Jesus to the stories, striking it, and seeing what may resonate, what may be in tune with the Christ. That's the playful, reverent, trusting, musical approach to all things, not least sacred stories, that I try to um, practice. It's probably a pretty important disclaimer for a lot of my musings here. Like, should I read that at the beginning of every episode? Uh, anyway, so back to the, back to this these shining clothes. Um, see, there's one implied context of shining clothes. Uh, so there's, there's the story of the king that's shiny and thinks he's God and gets killed. Um, but there is another character or set of characters who has shiny clothes. It's implied anyway. It's the vest of the priests of the temple in Jerusalem. 
And before that, the priests in the holy tent that functioned as a mobile temple between Moses on the mount between the mobile Moses on the mountain story and his community taking over the mountain where Jerusalem would be built. They had f- four rows of these three different kinds of precious stones each, a total of 12 different kinds of uh, precious stones on the vest, 12 stones, 12 tribes. So as the story goes, um, the interior of this temple was just decked with gold, walls covered in it with these like elaborate plant imagery carved into it that has all these interesting resonances with like the that people's story of of um some of their earliest stories of of what it means to be human there's just oh my goodness i want to have a whole episode just exploring that um and so there's temple there's there's this gold walled temple and there's candles in it and sometimes the presence of the divine is this radiant glory or even a pillar of fire that bounces all over the golden walls and therefore off the clothes of the priests the priests have shiny stones they're blinging and they're in a place that is radiant so the priests in the presence of this holy glory reflect divinity the golden vegetation carvings around them reflect even more of the divine back onto them. Creation in microcosm makes them all the more radiant. The priests of Jesus' people have shining clothes. To be in the presence of the divine is to be radiant, not just as our with our bodies, but what we cover them with. Their holy garb reflects the Holy One. So together, the symbols that propel these stories, gossamer though it may feel between them, uh, does comport well with this like bedrock, with this bedrock of the Jesus tradition. It's that the glory of God, which isn't just us going, oh, oh, oh my God, you're so great, God, God, you're great, cool, you're great, wow, you're big and strong and violent and golly, you're great, God. Um, the glory of God is depicted as radiance, and it's. At its kernel, at its deepest level, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. That's how one early author, Irenaeus, uh, put it. The glory of God is a human fully alive. Humanity, fully alive. God's splendor, God's radiance, God's glory, God's shine. God's sacred shine is nothing less than humans reflecting god into the world and even the world reflecting god into the humans you could say that an ancient understanding of what it means to be human is to be a mirror is to be shiny what are we going to reflect is the question of what it means to be human what image what light will shine forth onto us and from us we're going to bear an image we're going to shine what image will we bear what light will we shine this poetry awakens the way in which there are people um, in your life, in my life, who just seem so alive. They're human, but they they just like they're. I feel like they're more human. They're better at being human than I am. They are so full of love and abundance and truth and beauty. They just they radiate their presence. It doesn't mean they're like effervescent. Um, 
The presence could be subdued or flamboyant, but it radiates. They are glorious. They seem to just be in the flow of Christ consciousness. They are radiant. So, we've talked about Jesus shining his clothes, shining lights. Talk about another weird thing. Uh, ghosts. Or visions of ghosts or the presence of the past or whatever whatever's going on here. Um, Jesus is here talking to two of the most important characters in his community's oldest stories, that liberator figure Moses and this really weird prophet guy named Elijah. Now, both Moses and Elijah, the stories go, had mystical experiences on that same mountain, Sinai, hundreds of years apart. And both figured meaningfully in how the story of their community would come to resolution, or at least how they'd get out of the bind they were in for the 500 years leading up to Jesus' time. See, that story, that story from the rich dude being told his children would carry the promise, it had fallen apart, it had gotten trapped, gotten buried. They were um, just, uh, just like how that time where they were uh, these children of promise were stuck in Egypt, so now also they're stuck under another empire. Not Egypt, but Rome. And they're still unable, again, to bring the blessing and bear the promise, or at least do that in the way that they had hoped. The promises were bottled up. The parallel to um, Egypt, to that to Christ's day, was, was obvious enough, but it just... Luke hits it over, hits you over the head with it here. Um, the translation I gave doesn't quite bring this out, but um, what uh, what is Jesus talking about with Moses and Elijah? Uh, well, the Greek word is his exodus. His exodus, exodus, of course, uh, being the name of that big liberation that God had performed to get them out from under the Egyptian Empire. That's empire breaking language. And what Jesus is doing, is going to do, is his own exodus. And he's having a huddle with the first guy of the exodus and another guy who is going to be part of bringing about another one. So goes the memory. But, you know, so, you know, that's all a way of saying, you know, in case you don't know. Now you know. Uh, the climax of their story would be another exodus. It's, it's, it's amazing. So uh, check this out. Uh, it, it gets weirder with these ghosts. Uh, the sacred texts of Jesus' people were divided into three little mini-collections. First is the Torah, which are the five, first five books, uh, the Pentateuch, the Law. Um, they were said by tradition to be written by Moses. Uh, the second is the, gosh, uh, Nevi'im, I believe is how you pronounce it, uh, the Prophets. Uh, which wasn't just prophets, they were also early histories and sto- and then stories of the prophets, the mystics that were called by God to steer those histories away for, from catastrophe, or at least help make sense of the catastrophes that they found themselves hurtling through. Uh, the third mini-collection, uh, oh, and I should, I should say, um, Elijah is a big character in that second mini-collection, the Nevi'im. So the third mini collection is uh, in the Hebrew Bible is the Ketuvim, poetry, theology, drama, parables, uh, songs. 
So Jesus, who one early mystic said was the word made flesh, sacred poetry brought to literal life, is standing next to the Torah and the Nevi'im. It's no stretch here in the snapshots of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah to see Jesus as the Ketuvim next to the Torah and the Nevi'im. The poetry and the story that brings the he so Christ is the poetry and the story that brings the bigger story to completion and fulfillment. A sacred poetry bringing all to life, breaking empire along the way. He's consulting with the total flow of his people's imagination and stories and preparing to bring them into fullness. Now, finally, the capstone of the story, the screaming cloud. <laughs> uh, so sometimes mystery is as elusive as a cloud. Um, but it also has no trouble just bellowing, interrupting, like literally overshadowing. As the witnesses to Jesus' full priestly reflection of the divine glory of bringing the story and the library of stories to completion, or at least to a new act, as these stories make themselves known, they are... All this is interrupted by a cloud. It's just how... It's just part of how true seeing seems to go. Sometimes the Holy One will interrupt us, even amid our best intentions, to the point... To point the, the Holy One will point the way forward to strike the tuning fork and make everything resonate no matter what we're doing. The Holy One that swirled atop Sinai has no problem overshadowing fishermen and popes to smite the ground with a true word. Together, this scene is called the Transfiguration, and it, it is primarily about Jesus being transfigured. In the story we've seen that the Christ's transfiguration was characterized by the radiance of humanity fully alive, stories and traditions brought to completion, and divine disruption. The mystical details of these stories are, of course, fantastical, wholly outside of what we understand, how, for how we understand reality works. They're true, but they're also, for us, what's important is that they are truthful. The deeper realities of the radiance of Christ, of the presence of the past, and of divine disruption, these are things we are all aware of, that we have all felt in various ways. Transfiguration, then, the revealing of the glory of God that brims within everything, is a normal part of real life. It is a gift of apprehending the divinity that animates a fully alive human of stories, our stories, God's stories, coming to surprising new acts and turns. And of the numinous disrupting life as we're used to with a fresh word. There are ways in which our reality are transfigured, their deeper, deeper meaning revealed. The mundane brimming with the sublime, the presence and promise of Christ shining through the mundane. So transfiguration isn't only something that happens to Jesus. It's, of course, a gift. It's a gift coursing through 
your actual life waiting for us to witness to it as Jesus' friends did. So usually I end this podcast with what I think is some kind of savvy little loop or closure or punchline. Um, But atop the Transfiguration Mountain here, I'm humbled. Um, I've had fun tugging on some of the threads woven throughout it. I hope that you've found some something interesting to ponder through it all. But I returned to just feeling like Peter, you know, um, not, not, not knowing quite what I'm saying. I'll make a tent <laughs> for ghosts. Um, and a glowing guy. Uh, but here we are seeing how these themes illuminate the reality of our lives of how they bathe it in Christ, of transfiguration is a reality known best by poets. So I think it probably is best that I end on a well-known poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins, God's Grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil, It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. May your week ahead be filled with curiosity and wonder, gratitude and laughter, courage and presence. And may the peace of Christ be with you.